but it is also divinely energized. It acts only by the quickening power of God. Without me, said Christ, ye can do nothing. John 15, verse 5. Then certainly, without his enablement, we cannot act faith upon himself or his promises. But a spurious faith, springing up out of mere nature, self-made and self-supporting, is also a self-acting one. The possessors of it can believe when they like, as they like, and what they like. There is Christ, they can lay hold of Him. There are His promises, they can appropriate them. There are His offices, they can act faith upon them. Alas, such ability savors nothing of the faith which God gives to His people, and which causes them to lie at the footstool of His mercy as humble supplicants. This faith is also divinely increased. Lord, increase our faith. Luke 17.5 But let it be pointed out that such an increase does not render the Christian less dependent upon the Spirit of God. That would be a miserable increase, like the prodigal son getting his portion of goods and setting up for himself. Nor is it such an increase that now remains at one level, always acting from a certain power, always in the same lively exercise. Far from it. Real Christians know from painful experience how often their faith is at a low ebb, and when apparently the most needed, is the worst crippled in its actings. Nor is it such an increase that its possessor should necessarily be conscious of it. Moses knew not that his face shone, most probably, the centurion and the Canaanitish woman, little thought that they had great faith. Sometimes those who have the most faith feel they have very little, if any at all, while sometimes those who have little say they are rich and increased with goods. In what then does an increase of faith consist? Is it not the Christian's growth as a believer, a growth in a true, living, spiritual, experimental knowledge of himself as a sinner and of God in Christ as the Father of mercies? Faith is fed by knowledge, not by mere notions in the brain, for those only feed of false and presumptuous confidence, but by a spiritual and divine knowledge. As this knowledge increases, faith increases. As this knowledge is confirmed in the soul, faith is confirmed and strengthened. Blessed is the man whom thou chasteneth, O Lord, and teachest him, out of thy law. Psalm 94.12 Again, he led him about, he instructed him. Deuteronomy 32, verse 10 God leads into a great variety of circumstances, and in these circumstances, he causes his people to receive instruction. In that way, they learn the truth in an experimental manner and what they receive from the Word is confirmed more and more unto them. 
In that way, they learn the vanity of the world, the fickleness of the creature, the depravity of their own hearts. Now, this divinely given and divinely supported faith is renewed or stirred into exercise by the operations of the Holy Spirit and brings forth fruit after its own kind, that is, fruit which is spiritual in its nature and supernatural in its character. In other words, faith is an active principle. It worketh by love. Galatians 5.6 As it is energized by its giver, it produces that which mere human nature is utterly incapable of producing. An unmistakable proof of this is seen in our present verses, where we read, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant and fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Hebrews 11 verses 33 and 34. There are two ways in which the remarkable contents of these verses may be considered. According as we look at their letter in a natural way, or according as we ponder them with an anointed eye. Water will not rise above its own level. The heart of the natural man, being a stranger to spiritual things, cannot discern them when they are spread before him. That is why the majority of the commentaries are so largely devoted to the historical, grammatical, and geographical details of Scripture. There is an historical illusion in each clause of our text, but what the true Christian desires is to know the spiritual purport and the practical application of them unto himself. Only thus do the scriptures become a living word unto him. This is what we have sought to keep steadily in mind as we have passed from verse to verse of Hebrews 11 and which we will endeavor to be occupied with now. Who through faith subdued kingdoms. The opening word takes us back to the list of worthies mentioned in the preceding verse. And here we are supplied with an enumeration of some of the wonderful works performed by them. Nine fruits of their faith are mentioned. Compare the ninefold Fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 and 23. Therein we behold once more the marvelous and miraculous efficacy of a spiritual faith. According to John Owen, these instances are taken from things of all sorts to show that there is nothing of any kind whatever wherein we may be concerned, but that faith will be useful and helpful. Unquote. No matter what our lot may be, pleasing or painful, no matter what station we are called to fill, high or low, no matter how formidable or difficult the obstacles which confront us, all things are possible to him that believeth. Mark 9 verse 23 Through faith, subdued kingdoms. The word here for subdue means to fight or contend, to enter into a trial of strength 
of courage on the field to prevail in battle. The historical allusion is to the exploits of Joshua and David. John Brown said, Joshua subdued the kingdoms in Canaan, and David subdued those which were around that country, such as Moab, Ammon, and Syria. And they both subdued these kingdoms through believing. And of course, the important point to recognize is that the kingdoms here subdued were those which sought to prevent the people of God, Israel, from entering into and enjoying their rightful inheritance. Now, let us spiritualize that fact. The Christian has been begotten unto an inheritance. First Peter 1 verses 3 and 4. That inheritance is to be enjoyed now by faith. For faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. But there are powerful enemies seeking to harass and hinder us, and they must be subdued. There are two principal kingdoms which the Christian is called upon to subdue. One is within himself, the other without him, the flesh and the world. It was to the former of these that the Apostle had reference when he said, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. 1 Corinthians 9.27 The same task is set before the Christian. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. Romans 6 verse 19 The flesh or sinful nature within us must be subdued or it will certainly slay us. Bring about our eternal undoing. For if ye live after the flesh ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body ye shall live. Romans 8 verse 13 he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. Proverbs 16, verse 32. Does the reader exclaim, Such a task is a hopeless one? Joshua might have said the same when he first set foot in Canaan and found it occupied with a powerful and hostile people. And my reader, Joshua did not subdue them in a day nor in a year. No, it was accomplished little by little. It meant fierce fighting. It meant the exercise of much courage and patience. It meant surmounting very discouragements. But at the end, God crowned his labors with success. And remember that it was by faith he subdued kingdoms. Ah, Faith looks to God and draws vigor and strength from Him. True, I am weak and impatient in myself, yet I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Philippians 4 verse 13 There is also a kingdom without which the Christian must subdue, or else he will be destroyed by it. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? James 4 verse 4 And how is the world to be subdued? 
First John 5, 4 gives us the answer. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Sweetly is this signified in the Song of Solomon. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness? 8 verse 5. Here, the child of God, though toiling and struggling, worn and weary, is represented as rising above the world. And how is this accomplished? How is it that the spouse of Christ is enabled to rise above the immense hindrance of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life? Those things which are in the world, First John 2.16, she is seen leaning upon her beloved, Song of Solomon 8 verse 5, as he is our object. The world loses its power over us. As he is our strength, we get the victory over it. Wrought righteousness. In their narrower sense, these words signify to execute judgment, to enforce the laws of justice. The historical reference would then be to such passages as Joshua 11, 10 to 15, 1 Samuel 24, verse 10, 2 Samuel 8, verse 15. But in its wider scope, rod righteousness means the living of a holy life. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2. In every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Acts 10.35 Righteousness signifies up to the required standard and to work righteousness means walking according to the rule of God's word. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Matthew 7 verse 12 Now, right actions must spring from right principles and must be performed with right ends if they are to be acceptable to God. In other words, they must issue from a living faith and have in view the glory of God. It is the absence of faith and the substituting of self-interest for the honor of the Lord, which is the cause of all the injustice and oppression in the world today. But let it now be carefully noted that subdued kingdoms precedes wrought righteousness. This order is unchanging. Evil must be hated before good can be loved. Amos 5.15 Self must be denied before Christ can be followed. Matthew 16.24 The old man must be put off before the new man can be put on. Ephesians 4.22-24 In other words, the flesh must be mortified before the spirit can be manifested. Obtained promises or secured the blessings promised. God assured Joshua that he should conquer Canaan, Gideon, that he should defeat the Midianites, David, that he should be king over all Israel. 
but outwardly tremendous difficulties stood in the way of the accomplishment of those things. Yea, apparent impossibilities prevented them. Gideon was put upon a great improbability when he was commanded to take but three hundred men, fall upon and destroy an immense host. David and his little company seemed to be no match for the armed forces of Saul, and after his death, for years, the throne seemed as far away as ever. But where there is a real trust in the living God, the most formidable difficulties may be overcome. Obtained promises. Ah, it is one thing to hear and read about the wonderful things which the faith of others secures, but what about your own experience, dear reader? You may sincerely think that you believe in and are resting upon the sure promises of God, but are you obtaining a fulfillment of them in your own daily life? Are the blessings set forth in the promises actually in your possession? Are you securing the things promised? If not, is the reason to be found in your failure to heed what here precedes? Before obtained promises comes subdued kingdoms and then wrought righteousness. We must not expect to obtain the precious things set before us in the promises until we definitely and diligently set about the subjugation of the flesh and walk according to the rules of God's word, regulating our conduct by its precepts and commands. Stop the mouths of lions. The historical reference is, of course, to Daniel in the den. It shows again the marvelous power of faith. This comes out clearly in Daniel 6.23. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God. But how far may this be of help to us? Is the answer far to seek? There are ferocious people as well as fierce animals. There are savage oppressors and persecutors who seek to intimidate, if not destroy, the mild and harmless Christian. True, yet they should not terrify us, still less spoil our testimony by causing us to hide our light under a bushel. Daniel would not be forced into compromising by the threat of the lions of Babylon, nor should we be by the menacing looks, words, and actions of the world's lions today. Say with one of old, I will trust and not be afraid. Stopped the mouth of lions. Why, it almost looks as though faith were omnipotent. What cannot real faith do? We dare not set any limitations to it, for faith has to do with the living God, and nothing is too hard for Him. Ah, dear reader, faith lays hold of the Almighty, and not until your faith learns to do that is it of much worth. Is the Lord God a living reality to you, or do you have but a theological knowledge of Him? The ultimate reference in our text is to him of whom it is said, The devil, as a roaring lion, 
walketh about seeking whom he may devour. First Peter 5, verse 8. His mouth is opened against many a child of God, uttering lies, telling him that his profession is an empty one. Have you learned to stop his mouth? Do his false accusations no longer terrify you? Does he now find it useless to thus harass you any longer? It all depends. Stop the mouth of lions is preceded by obtained promises. Quenched by the violence of fire. The historical allusion is to the three Hebrews in Babylon's furnace. It shows the efficacy of faith to rest upon the power of God in the face of great danger, yea, before what seemed to be certain death. Those three Hebrews resolved to perform their duty, no matter what the event, committing themselves unto the disposition of a sovereign God, with full persuasion of his power to do whatever he pleased, and which would be most for his glory. Such an exercise of faith appears very, very marvelous to us. Uh, Let it be fully borne in mind that Daniel and his fellows trusted God in times of peace and prosperity, as well as in seasons of peril and adversity. If we live by faith, it will not be difficult to die by faith. Quenched by the violence of fire, a twofold spiritual application may be made of these words. First, we read of the fiery darts of the wicked, Ephesians 6, verse 16, and these are to be quenched by taking the shield of faith. If we are subduing kingdoms, working righteousness, and obtaining promises, neither the mouth of the lion will be able to intimidate us, nor the temptations of the devil overcome us. Second, we read of faith which is tried by fire, 1 Peter 1, verse 7, or fierce afflictions. This fire, like Babylon's, is not put out, but its violence or power to injure is quenched. If the soul cleaves to God, not can harm it. It is faith and not water which quenches the fire. Behold the martyrs singing amid the frames. Escape the edge of the sword. The historical reference is to such passages as 1 Samuel 18.4, 1 Kings 18.10, 19 verses 1 to 3, Jeremiah 39 verses 15 to 18, in several of which it seems as though those eminent servants of God escaped from danger more by fear than by faith, by fleeing from those who threatened their lives. The life of faith is many-sided and can needs to be taken to preserve the balance, to keep from mere passivity on the one hand and from fanatical presumption on the other. While a Christian is to walk by faith, yet there is wrestling, Ephesians 6.12, and fighting to be done, 1 Timothy 6.12. We are to seek grace and develop all heroic virtues, such as courage, valor, hardness, 2 Timothy 2.3, and endeavor by divine aid 
to overcome everything which hinders us entering into God's best. On the other side, the Christian must not refuse the use and aid of all lawful means in times of danger. When they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another, Matthew 10.23. To refuse to do so is not faith, but presumption. Escape the edge of the sword. What is the deeper meaning of this? Our minds at once turn to Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Confirmation of this is found in the fact that the Greek of our text reads, Escape the edges of the sword. But how is a Christian to escape the edges of the spirit's sword? By being in practical subjection to the precepts of Scripture, walking in communion with God. It is when we get into a backslidden state and give way to the lusts of the flesh that the Word condemns our ways, pierces our conscience, and strikes terror into our hearts. God does not wound or afflict willingly. Lamentations 3 verse 33 But only when our conduct is displeasing to Him. If our hearts be right with God, His word will strengthen and comfort rather than cut and wound us. If we judge ourselves for all that is wrong, the sword will not smite us. When we fail to, the word searches and convicts us. Note Revelation 19.15 where the same figure of the sharp sword is seen in Christ's mouth as he comes forth to destroy his enemies. Out of weakness we're made strong. In those words there may be a latent reference to Samson in the closing scene of his life, but most probably the historical allusion is unto Hezekiah. In Second Kings 20 verse 1 we're told that Hezekiah was sick unto death, and then he prayed unto the Lord, which was in marked contrast from Ahaziah, Second Kings 1, verse 2, and Asa, Second Chronicles 16, 12, Second Kings 20, verse 3. I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore, is much misunderstood, the key to it is found in 1 Kings 2 verse 4. If thy children take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee a man on the throne of Israel. Hezekiah was conscious of his integrity and sincere desire to please God, but he had no son to succeed him to the throne, and therefore did he here call to mind his promise. The Lord responded to his faith, restored him to health, added fifteen years to his life, and gave him a son. Out of weakness were made strong. It is not simply that the weak were strengthened, but out of weakness were made strong, the emphasis being upon an extremity of feebleness. It shows us that the vigor of faith is not dependent upon health of the body. It is written, The prayer of faith shall 
not the anointing of the elders save the sick, James 5.15 and compare Philippians 2.27, but our text is not to be restricted to physical weakness. God is able to make the doctrinally and spiritually weak to stand. Romans 14.4 The secret of the Christian strength lies in maintaining a consciousness of his weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.10 The trouble is that as we grow older, most of us grow more dependent and self-sufficient. The fact is that the oldest Christian has no more strength in himself than he had when he was but a babe in Christ. Just as soon as we fail to feel and acknowledge before God our personal weakness, do we fail to prove the sufficiency of God's grace. Seek strength from Him daily. Wax valiant in fight. Probably the reference is to Samson, Judges 15, verse 15, and David. The phrase signifies that these heroes of faith refused to be intimidated by the might and number of their enemies. Undaunted by the great odds against them, they refused to give way to a spirit of cowardice and entered into a pitched battle against their foe. Compare Deuteronomy 31, 23, Joshua 1, verse 7, Psalm 3, verse 6, and Acts 4, verse 29. Once again, we would stress the importance of the order here. Life's valiant and fight is preceded by out of weakness were made strong, and that in turn by escape the edge of the sword. May we not easily perceive here why it is that we are so quickly and so frequently overcome by our spiritual foes? Turn to fight the armies of the aliens. Such passages as Joshua 10, verses 1 to 10, and 2 Samuel 5, 17 to 25, may be consulted for typical illustrations of what is here in view, carefully bearing in mind that while the power of God giving success to the efforts of Joshua and David was the efficient cause of their victories, yet instrumentally it was through faith they were wrought. The path of faith is one of conflict because the adversary contests every step of the way. The chief reason why the individual Christian experiences so little victory in his spiritual warfare is because his faith is so little in exercise. And, we may add, the chief reason why the church collectively is failing so lamentably to turn to fight the armies of the aliens is because there is so much jealousy and strife among its own members. Chapter 25 The Pinnacle of Faith Hebrews 11, 35 and 36 In his lengthy but most blessed description of the life of faith, the Spirit of God has, in Hebrews 11, passed from one phase of it to another, exhibiting to our view its many-sidedness. But there was one other aspect thereof which required to be delineated in order to give completeness to the whole. 
and that we have designated the pinnacle of faith. For to suffer for God, to meekly endure whatever affliction He is pleased to put upon us, to lay down our lives for the sake of His truth, if called upon to do so, is the highest point which faith can reach. Therefore, in the text which is now to engage our attention, he moved the Apostle to pass on to an entirely different sort of the fruits of faith from those mentioned in the preceding verses, and shows us the power of faith to support the soul under sufferings, even the acutest afflictions to which the human mind and body can be subjected. John Owen wrote, For hearing of these great and glorious things, they might be apt to think that they were not so immediately concerned in them, for their condition was poor, persecuted, exposed to all evils and death itself for the profession of the gospel. Their interest, therefore, was to inquire what help in, what relief from faith they might expect in that condition. What will faith do where men are to be oppressed, persecuted, and slain? Wherefore the apostle, applying himself directly unto their condition, with what they suffered and further feared on the account of their profession of the gospel, he produceth a multitude of examples, as so many testimonies unto the power of faith in safeguarding and preserving the souls of believers under the greatest sufferings that human nature can be exposed unto. End of quote. Not only were these instances of the sufferings of the Old Testament saints pertinent to the circumstances the Hebrew Christians of Paul's time were in, but we too need to be informed of what faith in God and fidelity to His truth may entail. At the outset of the Christian life, we are bidden to first sit down and count the cost, Luke 14.28, which means that we are required to contemplate those sufferings which the following of Christ is likely to involve. And it is well that we should frequently remind ourselves that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22 It is criminal silence on the part of any servant of God to conceal from his hearers that a true profession of the name of Christ will necessarily bring down upon us not only the scorn and opposition of the outside world, but also the hatred and persecution of the false religious world. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. First Peter 4, verse 12 The Lord Jesus Christ dealt openly in this matter, and plainly made known what was likely to befall those whom he called to follow him, and expressly affirmed that he would admit none into the ranks of his disciples save those who denied themselves, took up their cross, and engaged to undergo all sorts of sufferings for his sake and the Gospels. He deceived none with fair promises of a smooth and easy passage through this world, so too does his faithful apostle, in the verses which are to be before us after setting before the Hebrews 
some of the grand and glorious achievements which the faith of their predecessors had wrought, now reminds them of others who were called upon to exercise their faith in the greatest miseries that could be undergone. Great trials and sore afflictions are to be expected in the path of faith. The Savior Himself encountered them, and sufficient for the disciple to be as His Master. According to John Owen, all the evils here enumerated did befall the persons intended on the account of their faith and the profession thereof. The Apostle does not present unto the Hebrews a company of miserable, distressed creatures that fell into that state through their own default, or merely on the account of common providence, disposing their lot in this world into such a state of misery, as it is with many, but all the things mentioned they underwent merely and solely on the account of their faith in God and the profession of true religion, so as that their case differed in nothing from that which they might be called unto. End of quote. But not only were these sufferings encountered in the path of fidelity to God, but it was the exercise of faith which enabled those Old Testament worthies to patiently and spiritually endure them. Faith is a grace which draws down from heaven whatever blessing of God is most needful to the saint, and therefore does it stand him in as good stead in the night of adversity as in the day of prosperity. Faith is a new creation principle in the soul, which not only energizes its possessor to perform exploits, but it also enables him to hold his head above the dark waters when floods threaten to drown him. Faith suffices the Christian to face danger calmly, to continue steadfast in the duty when menaced by the most foreboding outlook, to stand his ground when threatened with sore sufferings. Faith imparts a steadfastness of purpose, a noble courage, a tranquility of mind, which no human education or fleshly efforts can supply. Faith makes the righteous as bold as a lion, refusing to recant the horrible tortures and a martyr's death be the only alternative. Faith gives its possessor patience under adversities, for by faith he sees them in a scriptural light and bears them by the enabling strength of Christ. How good and profitable is a sanctified affliction, but then only is it sanctified to us when faith is mixed with it. When faith is not an exercise, the heart is occupied with the things which are seen and temporal. Only the creature's hand or the creature's treachery is viewed, and heavishness and resentment prevail. Or worse still, we are tempted to entertain hard thoughts against God and to say, The Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. But when the Spirit renews us in the inner man, and faith becomes active again, how differently do things then appear? Then we take ourselves to task and say, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Hope thou in God. It belongs entirely unto the sovereign 
pleasure of God to order and dispose the outward conditions through which his church passes upon earth. Seasons of prosperity and times of adversity are regulated by him as he deems best. Eras of peace and security and eras of persecution and peril are interchangeable, like day and night, summer and winter. Yet God does not act arbitrarily. It was not until after Abraham left Bethel and its altar and journeyed southward, Egyptwards, that there arose a famine in the land, Genesis 12, verses 8 to 10. It was only when Israel forsook the Lord God of their fathers and followed other gods that his anger was kindled against them and he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about. Judges 2, verses 11 to 14. It was only when man slept that he suffered the enemy to sow tears among the wheat. Matthew 13:25. It was after Ephesus left her first love that the Smurian era of persecution was experienced. Revelation 2, verse 4, and verses 9 and 10. And it is because so many of the professing servants of God repudiated his Lord during the previous generation that we are now plagued with a reign of lawlessness in the church, home, and state. God will not be mocked, and in his righteous government he visits the iniquities of the fathers upon their children and Hence it is that seasons of prosperity are followed by seasons of adversity. Yet during these seasons of adversity, whether they take the form of spiritual dearth or of physical peril, the godly remnant who sigh and cry because of the abominations which are found in what are termed the public places of worship, or who meekly endure the persecutions of hypocritical professors or the openly ungodly world are no less acceptable with God and are as precious in His sight as those whose lot was previously cast in times of the greatest earthly felicity. The darker the night, the more evident the few stars twinkling between the clouds. The more awful be the state of professing Christendom as a whole, the more suitable is the background for the children of God to display their colors. The fiercer the opposition made against the spiritual faith, the grander the opportunity for bringing forth its choicest fruit. There is no higher aspect of faith than that which brings the heart to patiently submit unto whatever God sends us, to meekly acquiesce unto His sovereign will to say, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? John 18:11. Oftentimes the faith which suffers is greater than the faith that can boast an open triumph. Love beareth all things, 1 Corinthians 13:7, and faith, when it reaches the pinnacle of attainment, declares, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. John Owen declared, There is as much glory unto a spiritual eye in the catalogue of the effects of faith that follow as in that which went before. 
The church is no less beautiful and glorious when encompassed and seemingly overwhelmed with all the evils and dreadful miseries here recounted than when it is in the greatest peace and prosperity. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.